We're going to dismiss kids now, and as kids are being dismissed, I'm just going to ask you to grab your Bibles, turn to Genesis 3, and we'll start there in a moment. Uh, I adapted this, this intro, this introduction today from a pastor in, um, in Ohio, so anytime I borrow, and you know, there's nothing new under the sun, but anytime I borrow anything from somebody, I want to make sure and give credit. Um, what I want to start out by saying, well... First of all, I know why nobody sits behind the Mendax. I, I figured that out today. They are tall people. <laughs> it was like in between like Michelle and Rick, like this little narrow passage trying to see the words on the screen. And speaking of the words on the screen, over the world, millions of people wake up every day unable to see until they put on these incredible lenses glasses or they put contacts into their eyes and suddenly what was blurry becomes clear i hope oh there we go it's hard to imagine a world without lenses isn't it especially if you wear contacts who wears contacts or glasses that's like half so when i said millions it may be more than that i don't i don't know what the percentage is across the world of people that either wear or should be wearing corrective lenses is, but I'm sure it's very high. When we take these lenses and we install them on a frame and we put them on our ears and over our nose, or we take small lenses and put them into our eyes, it makes what was blurry clear. And then we can see. There's another kind of lens that we've been talking about for the past four or five weeks, isn't there? That's the lens of worldview. When we look at the world and we try to understand the world and we try to make sense of what's coming in from the world, we look at it through a lens of worldview. And it doesn't matter whether we have 20-20 vision, we wear contacts, we wear glasses, we're blind or we're deaf. We have a view of the world that through which we interpret and try to make sense and understand what's going on around us. Unlike optical lenses, however, the worldview impacts not only what we see, but also what we hear and what we try to understand and what we experience and the things that happen in this world are filtered through the lens of worldview as we try to make sense and understand it. A secular worldview begins with the goodness of man rather than the sovereignty of God. And I'm sure you hear this if you listen at all in our culture, you'll hear the strains of people are generally good. They just need a handout or they need a hand up or they need some kind of help. They need some kind of, they need some kind of encouraging words. They need some kind of program or some kind of process to help them get up out of where they're at, out of poverty, out of a bad situation. A secular worldview says man is inherently good and just needs some encouraging. It moves from the message that Christ died for the sins of mankind to the message that Jesus came to earth to make good men better and provide a moral example. It's a watering down of the true gospel. The secular worldview sees a divine imperative as this, save the planet, but disregard the souls of men and women. This deficient and false lens diminishes the value of human life and raises the value of other created things in this order. 
It diminishes the value of the union of marriage. And it stresses instead the needs of the poor and the environment. Through this lens, a fish or a tree has more importance than an unborn child. Ultimately, Romans 125 has become true when people have exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature, the created thing, rather than the creator. That's become true in our culture, isn't it? Serve the created thing rather than the creator. When we look through this lens, we become, we become more concerned with creation care as opposed to caring for those who are fearfully and wonderfully made, the image bearers of the creator God. When we look through the lens of secular worldview, social justice becomes the end-all answer to man's problems. Political activity and government programs take the place of spiritual transformation. That's why we're going all the way back to Genesis at the beginning. Because God has a different view of things. We as Christians should be looking through a different lens of worldview. The lens that we look through will determine how we perceive what we see. And if the prescription's not correct, we won't see things right. Anybody ever had a bad prescription in your glasses? Anybody ever had a good prescription, but then a couple months later or years later, it was bad? That's kind of where I'm at right now. In fact, the other day, Lydia said, I think you need to go get your eyes examined again because I'm starting to do this number. And in, in if you're as old as I am or older, you understand what that means. <laughs> I use a large print Bible, you know, so then I can see. We're going to be in Genesis 3 this morning as we continue this. And over the last several weeks, we've looked at the details of the creation. We've looked at the details of the fall. Now we're looking at the details of the consequences. We talked about the, the immediate consequences of rebellion last week. And today we're going to continue in Genesis 3 verses 14 through 19 and examine some of the explicit consequences, sometimes called the curses that God meted out to the three guilty parties. And then we're going to finish chapter 3, 20 through 24, and look at the long-term consequences that lead us up to the moment we're in right now. So the explicit consequences for those involved are threefold. Let's take a look in Genesis 3, starting in verse 14. We're going to read 14 to 19 and see what it says. It says, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, which I, and, uh, and have eaten of the tree, which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you'll add understanding to the reading of God's word today as we study and we discuss and we talk about it. 
Lord, allow it to penetrate our heart, change our attitudes, affect our filter, change the distortion of our lens that we see things truly in this world according to your purpose and your will. In Jesus' name we pray this, amen. So we have this first of the three curses. It's the curse uh, to the serpent. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, and he, he, he laid out some things. He said, you're cursed above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go. Dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And then he says, I'll put enmity between man and serpent, between woman and serpent, between offspring and offspring. There's some debate about this curse. We don't know because Scripture doesn't explain it. it, does, it it's, it's unnecessary for it to be there, but we don't know. Did the serpent have legs before this curse? And God took away the legs by saying, now you'll crawl on the ground? Did the serpent always stay on the ground? And God merely imposed a symbolism of now something that was on the ground, crawling on the ground, was, was evil? was wrong we don't know we don't know what he was what he was doing there we don't know if he took away legs or if it was merely symbolism but what we do know is this he would now be on the ground and he would be feared by man and man would fear the serpent they would fight each other there would be enmity between one another now, he obviously didn't mean that all women would hate snakes. Do any women here like snakes? Yeah. So, I mean, there's a couple. He didn't mean all women would love snakes, <laughs> nor that all offspring of women would hate snakes. While it might not have always been this way, the serpent or the snake has now become a symbol for evil. In Isaiah, we can read a little bit more about the state. It's uh, on, on page 362 in your Bible in the pew. It's going to be up on the screen as well. Isaiah 62, I'm sorry, 6525 says this, The wolf and the lamb shall graze together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. He shall, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. What the Lord is saying here is that ultimately from woman, read Mary, the mother of Jesus Christ specifically will come one who will crush the serpent's head, that is Jesus. Page 554 in your pew Bibles, Romans 16, 20 says this, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This passage in Genesis is the first indication, the first foreshadowing of the coming of a Christ, of a Messiah, who will come to rescue us from ourselves and the consequences that we have because we've chosen to be our own God. We've chosen to be able to proclaim what is good and evil for ourselves. And when Christ comes, he will be victorious over Satan and the serpent, and he will come through a woman and through the Spirit of God. Now let's turn to Eve, verse 16 in chapter 3. It says, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. Any women? I don't even know if we should talk about this topic. It's dangerous. It's a dangerous topic. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband. He shall rule over you. There's really two things here we're going to discuss. The first one is the pain. Up until now, it, it, it's, it's, 
we can read those first three chapters and it seems evident that there was no pain, there was no death, there was no sorrow. We know there was no shame and there was no grief. There was no uh, remorse. There was no guilt until Adam and Eve took and ate the fruit. And then we begin to see some things happen. Death comes into the garden. Pain comes into the garden. Shame comes into the garden. It, it, I was reading this and I was thinking, okay, so birth maybe was pain-free before and now it's not. But then I read it again and it says, I will multiply your chain and your pain in childbirth. So I think it was gonna hurt a little bit, but it hurts. I, I only know this from asking my wife. Hurts a lot. Any, anybody? Yeah. Childbearing, painful. In verse 28, God told man and woman to be fruitful and multiply. It was like their birthright. You're going to steward the creation. Adam, you're going to name all the animals. Adam and Eve, you're going to have this great relationship. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. We're going to be together in the garden. We're going to spend time together. Remember, there was this palpable connection to a God that they, we don't know if they could see or touch or feel, but they would be together in the garden. And then that would be broken. But the 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 principle or the 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 command to be fruitful and multiply stands. But now something would be tied to it that wasn't tied to it before. What was initially a fundamental right or a joy or a privilege now becomes a pain-filled thing. It's still a joy. It's still a privilege. It's still a command, be fruitful and multiply. But childbirth has become a painful thing for the image bearer because of the sin. The created order is out of balance and the introduction of new life is now bound up with something new and that's pain. The second part is really interesting. Secondly, God says something interesting to, to Eve. He says, your desire shall be contrary to your husband. We're on dangerous ground. <laughs> Any women... Men, husbands, wives, that says your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Have any of you experienced this in marriage? Just raise your hands. We, you know you have. Yeah, you can put it down now, Daniel. Thanks. <laughs> I want to look at Genesis 4, 6, and 7 because it uses the very same language just use it to kind of shed some light on this issue. Genesis 4, 6, and 7. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. But you must rule over it. We take this understanding back to Genesis 3.16 and what we see is this. Your desire will be to control, to manipulate, to rule over your husband. Then your husband will rule over you. And so what was supposed to be this amazing, beautiful relationship between husband and wife and between God and man is now, well, the God and man part, that's broken 
because of sin. And we'll see at the end of our reading today that there will be a separation as they're cast out of the garden and life becomes much more difficult. But when they leave, they will take with them this grappling, this manipulation, this desire to control one over the other. And it will it'll be the defining thing in marriage as we learn how to love one another and honor one another and serve one another and lead in a marriage because what happened when we decided to take it all on our own and make our own decisions and proclaim our own good and our own evil is that relationships got more complicated, especially the marriage relationship. The woman will desire to control the husband. The husband will rule over the woman. There will be sin on both sides. The woman who wants to rule the man and the man who wants to rule the woman. What we see here in no simple terms is a destruction, not a total destruction, but a, destru a destruction within the marriage relationship of how we deal with one another. What has been created to be the most meaningful, the most beautiful, the most life-giving earthly relationship because the, the edict, be fruitful and multiply, now also becomes the most difficult relationship. Don't, you don't have to say amen to that one. But it's true. If we're going to be honest, that's why so many marriages don't make it because it's a difficult relationship. And it takes Jesus Christ in the midst of it. And it takes love and respect from both sides to navigate it. Lastly, Adam. Adam is going to get his. Remember, there's no Eve did it and she was worse and Adam just kind of got caught up. It, it wasn't like that. Adam was standing there silently watching as Eve talked with the snake. He didn't interject. He didn't stop. He didn't do anything. He didn't lead. We're still kind of stuck in that, aren't we, men, sometimes? Stuff happens in the family, and we just kind of, we, we shirk back from leadership. We shirk, we, we, we pull away. That's what Adam did. He should have said something. He should have done something. He should have interjected and said, no, Eve, let's, let's not do this. This is wrong. But he stood silently by, and you know, silence is agreement. And then when she handed him the fruit, he ate. So Adam's, Adam's curse. Genesis 3, 17 through 19, again, it says, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, eaten from the tree of which I have commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall not eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground from which you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Anybody ever had a yard with weeds? I don't know how bad the weeds are here because our yard's not, not a very good yard. And it's also very small. We had a half acre in Montana. And weeds grow in Montana. Like weeds. <laughs> And it was like, if you didn't do something, they would take over the lawn, the path, the driveways, the sidewalks, the roads. It, it, they're just, they're insidious. Weeds 
will now become the norm. Anybody, I know you grew up on a farm, Michelle, right? Anybody else grow up in a farming? Couple farming? Were the weeds something you had to deal with in farming? Yeah? Yeah. Because if you don't do something about the weeds, the weeds grow better than what you're trying to grow. So what you're trying to grow dies and you just end up with weeds. Adam was equally complicit in the sin and the rebellion towards God, so he has a curse And that curse is he has to deal with weeds. I hate weeds. I really do. I I just, I don't like weeds. I hate them. Everything is broken in this curse. They were given a, a wonderful garden to live in. Food growing everywhere. Do you remember what God said to them? Here I have provided for you every kind of food nothing had to die it was all a vegetarian society at the beginning right no animals would die eat of anything you want to even the tree although it's not explicitly said they could have eaten from the tree of life but they didn't there was just one tree they couldn't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil don't eat from that tree you can eat anything else no work would be involved Although they were supposed to steward the creation, there was no sweat. No sweat equity had to be poured into the garden. It just grew. They could eat whatever they wanted. Now, eating becomes difficult. Eating requires work. Eating requires sweat. It's tedious. It's unrewarding. The stewardship of God's creation would now be incredibly complicated. And on into history in the future leading up until today, there will be people that don't eat because something won't grow or they can't grow enough or they can't get enough food. Now, whereas people would have all they wanted, now some have none at all. Only by sweat and hard work would man and woman be able to fill their stomachs? And that would come at great difficulty. And at the end of the day, what was waiting? Death. At the end, death, because you are dust, to dust you shall return. Genesis 2.7 says, The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and he became a living creature. And now at the end of your life of toil and sweat and hard work and painful childbirth and difficult relationships between husband and wife waited for you death. Spiritual separation from God because you're going to be cast away from him. Physical separation from life in death because of sin. It's not a very pretty picture, is it? It's pretty grim. It's a grim picture. Man was destined to return to the ground. With the curse of death, the whole created order is now broken. The brokenness is now complete. It's subject to death and decay, and what was once dust will now return to dust in the end. So those are the three, the, the three immediate consequences, but they are also long-term because they feed off into the future. But when we started this series, I told you there were four points. We're on our fourth today, although we've still got two more weeks after this. We're going to hit our fourth point, and then we're going to, we're going to talk about some other things. But there's some other long-term effects at play here. Let's take a look again at Genesis 3, if you'll turn in your Bibles. 
If you need the page number, I think it's like page three or two. But there's a whole bunch of stuff at the front, so you've got to turn past like the first 15 pages or 20 pages to get to it. Genesis 3.20 says this, The man called his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the tree of life. He didn't want them to get back to that tree. Genesis 3.21, we've talked about this last week. We've mentioned it once or twice before, but I want to mention it again today because it is a long-term effect. It says, The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin, and he clothed them. Now, God could have very easily said, Poof, here's some skin, but it's more plausible to believe that because death has now entered the garden, God himself took some of his creation, deer, elk, we don't know what it was, killed it, prepared the skins and gave it to Adam and Eve because leaves weren't going to cut it. Remember in the shame moment in the garden after they ate, they realized they were naked. They somehow cobbled some leaves together to cover themselves because of the shame of their nakedness. Now, God knew as they were cast out of the garden, they would be exposed to things they hadn't been exposed to before because they didn't need clothes before. Now they need clothes. So we're, we're assuming now the created order of the world is even changing. There's going to be hot and cold and wet and dry, and they need clothes. Not to mention they needed to cover themselves. The curse of death makes its presence known early. God himself took life of his creation in order to clothe Adam and Eve. There's no way back to Eden at this point. God couldn't say, oh, it's all good. Just say you're sorry and we'll put it back. It'll all, we'll put it all back. It'll be good. It, it, it doesn't work that way. What's done is done. The death of the animal to cover the man and the woman is a picture now of what is to come. It's a picture of, of a Messiah who would come. It's the first of many bloody sacrifices that start in Genesis and lead to the cross of Christ, where he was sacrificed for us. Jesus, the Lamb of God, would be the final sacrifice. Page 517, uh, the book of John, the very first chapter. I'm just going to read one verse, but I'm going to turn there. Verse 29, John the Baptist looks and he sees Jesus coming. It says, the next day he saw Jesus coming towards him and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's giving us a, a preparation to, to know that Christ was going to be that perfect lamb sacrifice that would cover the sin of man. The other thing to point out here is that Eden is lost. Man and woman were cast out in order that they not have access to the tree of life. A thing that I think was God being merciful. Because if you're stuck in sin, separation, and death, you eat from the tree of life, you're stuck that way forever. There's no way out now. Eternally damned, eternally separated, eternally broken eternally dying. But as we read in Revelation, at the end, 
is waiting, the tree of life with the river of life flowing through it, under it. Somehow the tree is on both sides of the river and the river of life is flowing out where now in heaven the tree of life is waiting for us. It's something that's at the end. God has protected it from us at this point so we are not eternally stuck, separated from him. In closing Genesis 3, uh, this introduces us to, to several important ideas. First of all, this. There was willful rebellion of man. Just kind of a, kind of a recovering what we've talked about. Willful rebellion. God gave them a choice. Be your own God. Allow me to be your God. You have a choice. They willfully rebelled in choosing to make and choose their own path by taking and eating. The person who is most offended in this chapter is God. God himself, the Father, is the most offended party. Not Adam, not Eve. This chapter is most of all about idolatry of self. It's most of all about taking care of myself, which is diametrically opposed to the worship of a creator God. I can't worship myself and cast my own vision for my own preferred future and do things the way I want and make my own decisions and choose and decide what's good and what's evil and worship a God. You can't do both. There's only one or the other. I may not and I cannot idolize myself and worship God. It's not possible. This chapter is at the beginning of the Bible and it shows us what we need most. If God now stands against us, if he has pronounced death upon us because of willful disobedience, the thing we need the most is to be reconciled back to him. Remember last week we talked about what it meant to be justified. We need to be reconciled back to him. We need to be saved. <clears throat> Take a look at Colossians. It's in page 572. Colossians 3, 5 and 6, it says this. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. A man fell in a hole. He fell in a hole and he couldn't get out. A traveler passed by. He told the man to meditate, to purify his mind, and when he reached Nirvana, all suffering would cease. The man did as he was told, but he remained in the hole. Another man appeared. He explained that the hole didn't exist, and neither in fact did the man. It was all an illusion. The man who did not exist was still stuck in the hole that was not there. Another visitor arrived. 
he instructed the man to perform good deeds to improve his karma, and though he would still die in the hole, he might be reincarnated as something magnificent. Another man looked down from above. He taught the man to pray five times a day facing east and to follow five important tenets. If he was faithful, one day, perhaps, the divine would set him free. The man prayed as best he could, but he was losing strength, and in the hole he remained. Another man appeared. There was something different about him. He called down to the man in the hole and asked him if he wanted to be free. This man lowered himself into the earth, into the pit. took hold of the man and dragged him into the light. And the man in the hole, who could not get himself out, was saved. Adam and Eve got us into a hole. Any of us would have fallen in that same hole. It didn't matter if it was Adam or Eve. It doesn't matter if it was Sean and Lydia, Greg and Allison, Rick and Michelle. It doesn't matter who the two were. We were going to end up in the hole. Because that's human nature. Determine your own good. Be your own God. Determine your own, uh, uh, your own version of what is good and what is evil. Because of idolatry of self, the wrath of God is coming. But even in the beginning, the book of Genesis points to a Savior that will come to rescue us. We have to understand the Bible's analysis of the problem. We have to, that's why we're doing this. That's why we're reading Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 and 4. And we're, we're, we're determining what is the problem? What is the issue? Because if we don't agree on the same world view of what the problem is, the solution makes no sense. If the first four or five chapters of Genesis are fiction, are storytelling, are fantasy, if they're nursery room drawings, then the rest of the Bible makes no sense. We have to understand the problem before we understand the solution. The image bearers, that's you and I, must be reconciled or justified to the Creator God or we have nothing. The first three chapters of Genesis are in this book for a reason. It's not simply a creation story among many. There's other creation stories. These chapters point to a Savior who will rescue us, who will lift us out of the hole, who will take us and put us on solid ground. 
They point to a Savior who will rescue us from a life focused on self, mired in struggle with death waiting at the end into a life that reflects the purposes of God, into a life that reflects the original intent, the creation and design and the way all life should be, which is to be alive both physically and spiritually. I want to close taking a look on page 588 in your pew Bibles. It's 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to read verses 3 through 5. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, you have an inheritance in Christ if you know Christ. God sent his only son to bring us back to himself, to bridge that gap, to undo the curse that was done in the garden when man decided to be his own God. That's what Jesus Christ came to do. And he came to give us this inheritance. And I love these three words, imperishable, undefiled, unfading. I want to just look at those words for just a second. One of the things I like to do with words like this is I like to look at the antonym because understanding the antonym helps us to understand the word. So our, our inheritance with Christ is imperishable. The word means enduring forever or everlasting. But the antonym means this, to suffer complete ruin or destruction, death. Without an inheritance of Christ, our life is perishable. We will suffer complete ruin, destruction, and death. It also says our inheritance is undefiled, which means pure. The antonym to that means marred or spoiled or trampled down. You ever had something nice and you walked on it with dirty boots and you ruined it? That, this is easy to do this time of year. That's what our life is like right now. It's marred, it's spoiled, it's trampled down, but our inheritance with Christ is pure. Our inheritance with Christ is also unfading. That means not losing vitality or strength or brightness. But listen to the antonym for this, to gradually grow faint or disappear. That's what we have to look forward to without Christ. We gradually grow faint. And then we die, and we've returned to dust. Our inheritance through a creator God who sent his son to pull us up out of the hole that we dug for ourselves is to give us, he, he wants to give us this inheritance, this, this beautiful undoing of the curse. The future without a Savior has nothing for us. It's death. It's destruction. The future with a Savior is beautiful. If you look around, you can see the truth in the situation we're in as a country and as a culture. You only have to look down the road as far as Aurora this week 
to see what is happening in our world. You and I can see it in our neighborhoods. We can see it at the end of the pew. And we can see it in our own heart. But God had a plan. He didn't leave us stuck in a hole. He didn't leave us eternally separated from Him. He didn't leave us without a solution. Yes, we chose to be our own God. Yes, the separation happened. Death entered. Spiritual separation and death would come. Physical separation and death will come. But it doesn't remain that way if we choose Christ. God sent His only Son, Scripture says, to walk on this earth, to be among us, to live among us, to suffer like we have, to be tempted and tried in every way, yet remain pure. In spite of all that, he still went to the cross. And it's it says in Scripture, interestingly enough, I, I kind of always grew up, you know, being Catholic. I thought, oh, that was a terrible accident. God went, you know, God sent his son. He was going to do something amazing. It got co-opted by the world, and they killed him, put him on a cross. It was like a terrible thing. Scripture says that happened at just the right time, just the way God planned it, just the way God intended it. Christ went to the cross for you and for me. He went with my sin, and he went with your sin. And if we look to Christ and we confess Christ, yes, you are the Lord Jesus Christ. You died for my sins. Lord, forgive me of my sin. Help me to walk a new way. Help me to turn away from my desire to be my own ruler and to allow you to lead me in my life. It says in Scripture, if we call on his name and we believe that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, on our behalf, that we will be saved. Now we can answer the question, saved from what? Because we've gone through Genesis, we've talked about it. That eternal, that, that eternal separation we can be saved from. The eternal spiritual separation from God and the eternal physical separation. Now the body's going to die. We talked about that. Death is out of the box and it can't be put back in. But eternal life with God in heaven is not out of the box. It's still available in Christ. We're going to pray, and then we're going we're gonna to close in a moment in a song and continue to fellowship afterwards and talk and get to know one another some this morning. But I want you to just be thinking for a moment. Where are you at today? Are you in that place where you are proclaiming your own worldview? This is the world the way I see it, the world according to Sean, world according to insert your name. This is the way I see the world. This is the way I think the world functions. Allow the worldview that we've talked about in scripture to penetrate your heart this morning. Consider it. Think about it. Pray about it. Adopt it. I'm just going to encourage you. This is the worldview that God laid down for us. He created it all. And it was broken. And he wants to put it back together again. And he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to do so. You can be made right. You can be justified. You can be reunited spiritually with God today, sitting where you are right now. 
All you have to do is say, Jesus Christ, I have sinned against you. Forgive me for my sin. Justify me, wash me, cleanse me, take me to the Father. I want to know who God is. I want, to, I want that relationship that was broken in the garden to be made right in me, that I might know the Father and He might know me. Talk about lenses. When God looks at you and you are filled with Christ and marked by the Holy Spirit, He looks through the lens of Christ. And He looks at you and He says, acceptable. Enter into your master's happiness. When he looks at us without the lens of Christ, Scripture said the wrath of God is coming on sin. That's a rough place to be. I'm just going to encourage you as we pray in a moment. Just go before the Father say, Father, forgive me. Jesus Christ, save me. And begin to walk as a new creation at one and at peace with the Father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that as we come before you now, Lord, you will change hearts, change minds, change attitudes. Lord, help us to adopt a new worldview. Lord, tweak the worldview we have. Lord, even if we're walking with you and we've known you for two years or five years, 10 years, 20, 30 years, there's always more work to do. Scripture says we are being conformed into the image of Christ, and that's not a process that happens quickly, but it's a process that happens. So, Lord, today, challenge us anew. Even if we're already walking with you, Lord, challenge us to, to think a new way, to act a new way, to speak a new way. Lord, challenge us to take the the pressing urgency of this message out of this building and to this world. Lord, if we have the solution and the knowledge to the solution of the curse in the garden and we're holding it back from people, that's an ungodly thing. Lord, I pray that you send us out of this place with an urgency An urgency to talk to our friends, to our neighbors, to our coworkers, to our enemies, to the people we work with, the people we hang out with and play with. Lord, I just pray uh, for this community as we have for the past couple of weeks, as we pray for Elmwood Park, Lord, and for the communities where we live and the places where we work. Lord, we pray for boldness to speak, a boldness to share the love of Jesus Christ, whether it's in word or deed, or action. Lord, I pray that you give us that, and we ask, Lord, for the hearts of this community, not for our benefit, and not for us, Lord, for you. Not even to build this church. Purely for your kingdom, Lord, we pray that in, in, in whatever way you choose to use us, you use this body and this church to reach this community for your purposes and for your glory. Lord, we pray all of these things and many more that are on our hearts this morning. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please stand together. <clears throat>